0: Thanks, Tom. <clears throat> Let's be turning in our Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 1. We're continuing our verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Genesis. Our custom here is to do what we call expositional teaching, and that's just kind of a big fancy word to impress you, and it means that we just go verse-by-verse through the Bible and try to expose as much as we can as we go. So, I encourage you to as Tom said a moment ago, be good listeners. It's contrary to what's typical in our culture to sit here for a while and listen to someone talk. I know it's like even whenever somebody posts something on Facebook and it's like a video and you go to it and it's not 30 seconds and you're like, I can't do that. I mean, like 30 seconds is my limit. A three-minute video will, will just completely ruin my day. So it's hard to sit here for minutes at a time and listen to someone talk. I know that. But I encourage you, not because it's me, but because this is God's word, that we listen carefully today. And I also ask you right now to be prayerful that He will help you with that, that He will reveal Himself to you, show you how you should change, and grant you grace to do so. That's a good prayer to pray at the beginning of any sermon. Before we start, I want to just mention to you a few things that are upcoming. Some of these are a little far out, but I want you to go ahead and jot them down, and then I'll send an email out that'll remind you about these things. But on Sunday, May 18th, we're going to be celebrating our eighth anniversary as a church. We're going to be doing that at the below the dam area right off of Lewis Center Road at the base of Alum Creek. In fact, all of our picnics this summer are going to be there. It's a little closer to where we meet here. And we love that area there. There's a huge open field for the kids, there's great playgrounds. You can go up and down the stairs if you want to work out, go look at the lake. Um, if you're really ambitious, you can go sailing. There's lots of stuff you can do there. Uh, but anyway, May 18th, and that'll be probably right after the service. is probably how we'll do that. Rather than coming back in the evening, we'll do that on May 18th. We'll give you more details on that. And then the next two dates for our picnics for the summer are June 15th and August 24th. Those are both Sundays as well, and we'll have picnics those days. We'll let you know whether it'll be easier to meet after the service or in the evening. In fact, we welcome your input on that. Typically, what we've done in the past is gone to high banks, and we've met again around 5.30 or so and had a picnic. But it might be easier to just bring a bunch of food here like we sometimes do for potlucks and just go ahead and take it over to the picnic area and just continue on. So give us your feedback on that, and we'll, we'll decide what to do from there. But the first one on the 18th, we will go there right after the service. And then thirdly, and this is much more timely, this Saturday we're having our semi-annual night of prayer. And we will be doing that from 6.30 to 8.30 at the Shooter's Home. So, if you know where that is, great. If you don't, we can give you directions. We hope you'll join us, and i again, send more information out about that this week. So, in Genesis chapter 1, we're continuing to talk about the story of creation, which, as I have been contending through our verses, is about the glory of God. Or to put it, perhaps, a little bit more simply, the story of creation is the glory of God on display, So we're asking ourselves a very basic question. Why did God make me, which we'll talk about today, why did God make us, and why did God make all other things? Why? I think if we have eyes to see, we will believe and see that the story of creation is about the glory of God being on display. We have been seeing that throughout this text so far as we've seen him make the heavens, as we've seen him make the sky and the seas, as we've seen him make the dry land. And then he fills the heavens with the stars. He fills the skies and the seas with birds and fish. He fills the dry land with beasts of the fields and livestock and creeping things. We will find today that he fills it with people. Why did he make the cosmos? Why did he make inanimate creation? Why did He make all of the animals? And as we will see today, why did He make us? He did this to bring glory to Himself. And as we sometimes do here, it's important for us to define these somewhat theological terms. When we speak of the glory of God, what do we mean? Well, very simply, we're talking about the greatness of God. Glory and greatness are somewhat synonymous. So, God is glorious. He is great. And what, in what ways is He great? Well, He's glorious or He's great in His power. Creation declares that. God is glorious or great in His wisdom. We see that in the abundance in creation. We see that in the manifold distinctions among the created order. And as we've been seeing throughout this text, and I think we will see it supremely today, God is glorious, or God is great in His grace. Creation certainly declares God's power. Creation clearly talks about God's wisdom. But creation, perhaps most clearly, if we have eyes to see, speaks of God's grace. So the shape of this narrative, this story that we've been reading together has been moving forward, as any good story does, to a climax. And what is the climax? Well, we find that now, beginning in verse 26, down through verse 3 of chapter 2. Let's read together. This is God's Word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation." May God bless the reading of his word. A couple weeks ago, my son was up on a Saturday morning, and as my kids usually do, they're running around in their boxers, and that's just what they do, unless we make them get dressed and do anything constructive. And so I came to my little son, who was doing nothing very constructive, but that's what kids are allowed to do. They're not supposed to do constructive things. And I came to him in the midst of his playing. My son just runs around the house all the time. He's like on legitimized crack all the time. He's just always bouncing off things. And so I said to him, Sam, what time did you get up? Because they usually get up before us on Saturday morning. And he said, I don't know. I never look at the clock. And, you know, this is perfect for his personality, but it's probably true for most of our kids. And I I looked at him, and I I said, "Well, well, do you have any idea? He said, no, Dad, I never look at the clock. And so I thought to myself for a moment, well, maybe it's time for like a little tutorial on how to read a clock. But then I thought to myself, what does it matter? It, it doesn't matter this little guy. He doesn't have to worry about this stuff. And I also then began thinking to myself, I think about it all the time. I have one in front of me right now that you can't see. It's on my screen. I have one on my wrist. I have one on my phone. And I know you're watching that one. As adults, we're always paying attention to the elapsing of time. But my little son doesn't have to worry about that. When it's time to get up for school, we get him up. When it's time to get dressed and get out of his boxers, we get him in his clothes. When it's time to eat, when it's time to go to class, when it's time to go to bed, we we tell him. He's perfectly taken care of. And it's almost like time doesn't exist for a little six-year-old. I think in some ways that's the way creation is for us, and we're seeing today now the the clear connection between the environment where we live, and then we, us, who make up that environment, we who live in that environment. I doubt that today you did calculations when you woke up to think about how fast planet earth is spinning on its axis. You didn't think about that. I doubt you got out your telescope and looked up at the night sky and made sure that in relation to the astral bodies, the stars, that we were in our proper alignment. Some of you probably got up and flipped on the app on your phone and figured out what the temperature is going to be today because we care about such things. But beyond that, you probably don't care what's going on in Canada or Mexico or Sweden or Finland. It's not really important to you you have food in your refrigerator. You probably are not calling Kroger to find out where they got that beef. I mean, we just don't think about this stuff. We live here, and we're taken care of. We take it for granted. And this demonstrates God's grace to us, that He sends the rain when we need it. He sends the sun when we need it. He feeds us. He clothes us, and He does it with abundance, and He does it in a setting that is beautiful and amazing. And all of this shouts the fact that God is gracious. It's important, as I said a few minutes ago, for us to define what we mean when we use certain words. When we use the word justice theologically, or when we teach the Bible, we mean that people deserve punishment. When God punishes sin, Those who receive that punishment get what they deserve. Punishment is fitting for sinners. We have broken God's law. Mercy is the opposite of punishment. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is something more than that, though. We have said here before that grace is kind of like mercy on steroids, Grace is getting something you don't deserve. So if justice is getting what you do deserve, and mercy is not getting what you do deserve, grace is something so much better. Grace is getting something that you do not deserve. As you look at creation, we get what we don't deserve. Food, sunshine, rain, and so many other things. And I think subtly today we will find in this text that we get even more than that. We get what we might call redeeming grace, saving grace, rescuing grace. We have to look behind the text a bit to see it today, but I hope that we will. And what I want us to see by the end today is that God is full of, I'm going to use a big word here, and I think maybe you should learn it, God is full of effusive grace, Effusive just means abundant. It's always pouring out. If you like abundant better, go with abundant. I like effusive because we don't use it much. And it makes us think. God is full of effusive grace. It's always pouring out. Let's look at that together today. First of all, I think this text teaches us that God made us to be like him. Verses 26 and 27, I think say to us pretty clearly, God made us to be like him. The text says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them, let the people, have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now there's, two main questions we've got to answer as we go through these first couple of verses. First of all, who's God talking to? Because He says, let us. And secondly, what does it mean that we are created in the image of God? So first, who is the us? Who is the our at the beginning of verse 26? There are Lots of opinions that have been put forward for this. Some people believe it's sort of a majestic term. Sometimes whenever you're in countries that are very regal, like England, you might hear um, the royal family speaking in like a royal plural. So when the queen speaks on behalf of her family, she might say, we have declared this or we have decided this. What she really means is she has decided it because power resides in her. Sometimes we even use that kind of terminology here. Um, I might say we want you to know. What I'm really saying is, we the elders want you to know something. So, sometimes a singular person can speak in the plural. It's possible. But because of some Hebrew grammar things that that I won't go into today, that's probably not what's going on here. Some people think that what God is doing here is speaking to His heavenly court, that He has lots of angels all around Him that He has created. They're not mentioned here in the text, but We know somewhere along the way that the angels were created, and somehow maybe He's he's conversing with them. He's telling them what He's going to do next. Some people here see a subtle reference to plurality within the Godhead. Now, the Christian doctrine of the Godhead is a complex doctrine. It's a relatively unique doctrine, but essentially it teaches that there is one God. We are monotheistic but that He exists in three persons. He does not manifest Himself in three different ways. That's heresy. He actually exists in three different persons, yet He is one God. It's mind-boggling, we have to admit. Some people say that what's going on here is there is an intertrinitarian discussion. The Trinity is speaking to itself. We've already seen back in verses 1 through 2 that the Spirit of God was there, I was contending with you a couple of weeks ago that in verses 3 through 5, I think specifically we see the light of the world there, which happens even before the sun is created. Well, what's going on there? How is there light without stars? I contended with you that as we look at the rest of the Bible, that Jesus calls himself the light of the world, and John says that in him was life, and the life was the light of men at the end of all creation, when God refashions the earth, there will be no need for lamp or sun because God and the Lamb will be there. So, I was saying to you in verses 3 through 5 a couple of weeks ago that probably there's subtle references here to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ Himself. So, you've already seen the Trinity showing up in this text. These three opinions about the us and the hour of verse 26 have been put forward, among others. Which is it? Well, one of the first questions we have to ask ourselves is, what did Moses mean? And what did, un- what did Moses understand mean? Moses, nowhere in the five books that we attribute to him, the first five books of the Bible, does he talk explicitly about the Trinity. So probably Moses did not have this full orb, this fully complete understanding of what the Trinity was. It's possible that in some sense Moses saw this as God speaking to the heavenly court. Job 38 gives us sort of a parallel to this. God shows up to speak to Job in Job 38, and He says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Now, who are all these sons of God? Well, most scholars would say that these are the angels. So God is creating in the presence of the angels, and they're all shouting for joy. Moses may have that in mind when he speaks here about God speaking of the us and the hour. But I do not think that it is inappropriate with our fuller understanding of looking back at Genesis chapter 1 to see subtle references to the Godhead here. We've already seen it back in verses 1 through 5, and I think perhaps we see it again here. So when God says, let us make man, he's probably speaking to the heavenly court saying, hey, watch what I'm getting ready to do. But maybe there is a consultation going on among the members of the Trinity. The second question we have to really ask ourselves, and this is the greater question, is what does it mean to be created in the image of this God or this Godhead? Lots of opinions have been put forward for this as well. And rather than going through all of them, I want to just say to you, I think the basic idea here is that we are like God in many ways. That may seem like a cop-out, but the text itself does not clarify to us exactly what it means to be created in the image of God. And perhaps the clearest and most basic way that we can define this is just to say we are like God in very many ways. We'll go through those ways in just a few moments. So, God makes man in His image and in His likeness. These are synonymous terms. They're not really differentiating in any way. We are like God. We are created after His image. To illustrate this, whenever you are hanging out sometimes with your friends and your children are playing together, one of your friends might say to you, your son or your daughter is just like you. And what they mean is, they have your nose, they have your cheekbones, they have your hairline, they have your personality, they're sarcastic like you, they're smart like you, they're silly like you, they're funny like you. And as a parent, whenever you hear that, you actually kind of like that, don't you? Now, probably subtly that reveals that you like yourself a lot, but we won't go there today. But it's nice to know that these little offspring that you have given life to are like you. You you like that. You like your progeny. You like your offspring. You like your children to kind of carry on the family characteristics. It's a big deal. Parents delight in knowing that their children are growing up and growing up to be like them and growing up to emulate them. And this is where it's actually good because let's say you're a Christian and you really love God. Well, what do you want most for your kids? You know those moments whenever you First, see your children pray and they mean it? Or you first see your children confess a sin and repent it and and repent from it and really mean it? Or you see your children show grace when before they've been somewhat unkind to those around them? You, You like those things and you should. I think this explains to us why God created us in his image. God appropriately enjoys himself. That does not make God a megalomaniac, another big word. That doesn't mean that God is somewhere out in the universe just wanting everybody to just fawn over him, and if he doesn't get that, that somehow he's deficient. God created man not because he needed something to praise him. God had existed from before creation back into eternity, no beginning, and he was not deficient. He didn't need something to complete him, and yet in his great mercy, he does create them, and then as they enjoy him and emulate him or live in his likeness, that brings him praise and glory, and he enjoys seeing his attributes on display. In fact, it's fascinating to consider why the Trinity would have considered creation in the first place. Why would he have done this? I mean, if it's true that God has always been perfect, and he's always been satisfied with himself, why did he create? If he's perfect, we have to come to grips with the fact that God knows everything. There's nothing that God doesn't see. There's no eventualities he hasn't considered. There's nothing that he hasn't figured out. There's nothing hidden from him, either actual or potential. We'll talk more about this in a bit, but God had to have known And when He created this world, that it would fall into sin. It would stop emulating Him. It would stop treasuring Him. And the only way to remedy it would bring Him great pain. Why did God create? We have spoken before of the illustration of God being like a cascading waterfall. Have you ever been in places that are relatively mountainous? you will find that as elevation drops from peak to, to mountain to valley down into, like, lower recesses of canyons, that, that the water's got to go somewhere. So it falls down in a series of cascades. And that sort of explains to us what God is like. God pours out His love. And as we know from the Bible, God has always loved Himself. So to be very simple... The Father loves the Son. The Spirit then takes that love and pours it out. But for all of eternity, they were loving each other, very appropriately so. But because God is an overflowing, cascading God, He decided to create because He wanted to cascade that love down upon other beings. That's why God creates after His image, not just cows or lizards or snakes, not just trees or shrubs, not just dry land or water, not just innumerable stars in the heaven, but God wanted rational beings, beings that had will, beings that could receive love, beings that knew deficiency, beings that knew abundance, and upon them He would pour out His love in cascading fashion. I think another way to illustrate this might be a couple, man and woman, just married. Very often, a couple, after just being married, wants to be together alone for a while. It's one of the questions we always go through as we do premarital counseling with a young couple is, do you want to have kids, and how many kids do you basically want to have, and of course, that changes over time, and, and when do you want to have them? And it's important, I think, for a time at the beginning of a marriage. And, of course, not everybody goes through this, and it's fine, but most couples want a little bit of time alone. And even if you have kids right away, you probably had a good amount of dating time and engagement time. You you like that. But eventually, after a while, there's something in us programmed down in our conscience that we want to, to procreate like God did. The joy that we have together as man and wife We want to replicate, in a sense, by pouring it out on another. And so, in a sense, the cascade continues. The Father to the Son manifested through the Spirit upon His created order. And then we, in a sense, live like God by also procreating and showering our love down upon other little created beings. It's natural for a couple that knows the intensity of familial love to want to have these little beings that run around their house and pour it out on them. And much like we know that that's not always going to be easy, that it's going to be costly and sacrificial, God knew. And yet He created it anyway because God constantly cannot help but cascade over an effusive love. This text proclaims to us that we are not here by chance. We are created for a purpose. That's why the creation of man comes at the end of the story. It's the climax. God makes the environment perfectly, and then He puts us in it. What are some ways that we are like God? We've said today that being created in His image or after His likeness means that we're like Him in many ways. Well, in what ways? Well, first of all, we're able to fellowship. This is a big deal. What's the very nature of the Trinity? The Trinity for eternity had been fellowshipping in perfect love. As God makes us in his image or after his likeness, he makes us fellowshipping people. We are communal. This is hinted at when it says in verse 27 that he made them male and female. We'll see more about that in chapter 2 when he brings the first couple together in marriage. This is the reason why we have culture and community and society. But we were made not only to fellowship with one another, but to fellowship with God. There's a reason why I believe we, we long for human contact. It reveals something deeper that we were made to commune with the Almighty, with the divine, because even in the most intimate of our relationships, they often fall short, don't they? Even in the best marriages, there's brokenness. Even in the the best parent-child relationships, there's pain. Even in the most affectionate relationships, there can be great tragedy. And all of this causes us to, to long for to work hard for good human relationships, but it also points us to the much greater relationship that God created us for fellowship with Him. It's natural that if God created us after His own image, that He created us to fellowship with Him because the Trinity fellowships with one another. What other ways are we like God? Well, we're able now to worship. Now, God doesn't worship Himself, but God delights in Himself Himself. If God does not delight in the most supreme thing, then he ceases to be God because he would be delighting in something deficient. It may have just blown your mind, but I'll say it again. God always delights in the most supreme thing. Therefore, God delights in himself. Again, that does not make God a petty megalomaniac, but it does mean that God treasures the best thing, which is himself. And he made us to treasure the best thing, which is him. This is why whenever we treasure our worship, deficient things, we essentially are not ever going to really be happy. And then God creates within us a void, an awareness of emptiness and deficiency so that we might seek after the ultimate. Like God, we are volitional. We have a will. God did not create us just to be robots. God created us with choice which is also mind-boggling. If God was a petty megalomaniac, He would have created us with no will whatsoever. But He didn't. That led to all kinds of problems, which we'll hint at a little bit more later on today. God made us rational. God makes wise choices. He made us able to make choices, to, to think reasonably. God made us to be affectional, He made us to have feelings. We're happy. We're sad. We're elated. We're depressed. We feel warm. We feel cold. We feel high. We feel low. We delight. We have distaste. We love. We hate. We have mercy. We show justice. We are affectional beings. We are creative. We can paint. We can build We can mold, we can write, we can sing, we can have children, we build relationships, we build families. You see, in all these ways, our volition, our rationale, our affections, our creativity, our ability to worship, our ability to fellowship, all these things differentiate us from all of the animals. You see, it's clear here in the story that the climax is the creation of man, and God makes us unique from all of the other animals. And though there are Christians out there, and frankly conservative Christians that somehow can find some links between evolution and what we find here in the text, God's direct creation, I'm not one of those, but there are conservative people out there who find some way to make this all work together. Even if we, for a moment, and be careful that you hear me carefully here, even if we allow that for a moment, we cannot allow the idea that somehow God just left this all to chance and we sprang out of mud or sprang out of nothing. It's impossible. Even if you allow, which I want to underscore, I do not, that somehow creation and evolution might be able to be bound together somehow. You still have to account for the fact that God directly created man. So please don't come after me afterward and say, do you believe in evolution? I do not. I'm saying there are some good people who somehow find ways to make it work together, and that's a whole other discussion. But even if you somehow allow that, and you're listening to me carefully, right? Even if you somehow allow that, you still must account for the fact that God directly created man. We are not here by chance. We are not just a bundle of neurons. We're not just a bunch of matter that haphazardly came together. We are here purposefully. We are here by God's design, and we are the chief component of His creation. One last thing to consider before we move on. It's interesting here that Moses mentions that God created man and woman when He created mankind. In other words, He made gender distinctions. We'll talk about this more as we get into chapters 2 and 3. I don't want to spend a lot of time in it today. But it's interesting that at the very beginning, God made them equal. There is no room for lack of equality among mankind when it comes to gender. Now, this does not mean that there are not gender distinctions. I think that The text in chapters 1 through 3 clarifies that, that there are gender distinctions. But when it comes down to essence, men and women are the same. And if you think about it, we could actually take this a step further. If we are created after the likeness of God, and if men and women are equal in essence, this means that all humans are created of the same essence. So in a subtle way, this text screams injustice against not only gender inequality, but ethnic inequality, religious inequality. It means that even though there are differences, that we are forced to comply with equality and love. And perhaps that's why God made it like that, to make it hard. It's not easy to make those choices. It's not easy for a man to take his authority that God has rightly placed in his life and, and use it to lord over women or to abuse women. That, that goes against the created order, and when men do that, they are sinning against God. It's not okay to bring it to the point of ethnicity. It's not okay for, for one ethnicity, one race, if you will. Ethnicity is probably a better word, It's not right for one ethnicity to think it's better than another and to suppress it or to oppress it. Same thing with religion and all kinds of other things. God created us equal and we're to treat each other with love and respect. So God made us to be like Him. Secondly, God made us to glorify Him. Look at verse 28. Moses says, And God blessed them. This is like a benediction. This is why we have our benediction at the end of our service every single week. It's a time for you to receive blessing. That's why occasionally we encourage you to put your hands up. I know that's really odd for some of you. Um, Maybe some of you just aren't very emotive. You know, that, that affectional side of you is a little suppressed. You may get mad at me for saying that. Um, Next time, just put your hands up in the air just to humor me. Um, For some of you, it's hard to receive a blessing. My wife has talked about that before. Sometimes it's hard to put your hands up because you don't feel like you deserve it. And that's what grace is, right? You get what you don't deserve. But God, God blesses here. God is giving a benediction upon what he's done. We've said earlier as we were praying with our kids that we, we love our kids. We like to give them the best gifts. But as Jesus said, if we being evil know how to give good gifts, how much more does your Father in heaven know how to give good gifts? I've said to you today that, that creation itself, and I think we'll see some redemptive themes here in just a moment, it, it shouts effusive grace to us. That's what God does here. When God blesses, it's abundant. There is no lack of supply here. So he makes mankind in his image, and then he doesn't just let them go. He makes them after his image, and then he blesses them. It's a promise from the very beginning, right after they show up on the scene, that he's going to take care of them. And then he says to them, he starts speaking to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves in the earth. I wonder how he did this. Did he take them up on a peak and hold them there in safety? Keep them from the strong winds that blow at such heights and protect them from the cold. And then did he say, Look north and south and east and west, and see what you see. See the sun setting in the west, see the moon rising. See the innumerable stars in the heavens. See the animals. See the shrubs. See the oceans. See the land. See the abundance of what I have made. And it's all for you. It's all for you to be in wonder at. It's, it's all for you to enjoy. There's plenty of food. And I'll care for you for forever. And then he says, go take care of it. I mean, that's amazing. It's it's the best inheritance that was ever granted. And it was theirs to enjoy. And I say to you here that this teaches us that God made us to glorify him. We've already said today that God's glory is his greatness. We glorify him by reflecting his greatness. God made all this stuff and then he takes care of it. And what do we do? Along with him, we help take care of it. God's greatness is shown in his creative work and his providence in taking care of all of his creative work. Part of being created in God's likeness is to reflect how great he is in doing just that, in being good stewards of the things around us. Now, Adam had a garden to tend. Adam had animals to name and to watch over. But very basically, Adam was to live under God's care and then to show care to things around him, and we're really no different. Most of you do not live in a massive garden with rivers running through it. Most of you do not have herds of animals to name and to tend. In fact, most of us are the furthest from that, right? I mean, if a goat came into your house, you would scream and call, like, Animal Protective Services, I don't even know what they're called, and you would say, get the goat out of my house, I'm not a farmer. But you have stuff to take care of. You have kids, and they may act like goats sometimes, but they're not. You have kids to take care of. You have a job to be a good steward of. You have a home, you have property, you have friendships, you have creative powers. God has put all of us in a sphere of influence. And in that sphere of influence, we glorify the great one. We show his greatness by stewarding those things well. That means that when we're lazy... It means that when we are not careful, it means that when we are wasteful, it means that when we do not engage in what God has called us to engage in, that we are not reflecting His greatness. We are not glorifying Him. We are not living up to what it means to be created in His image. So do what you do well. Your sphere may be small, and frankly, in the grand scheme of things, your sphere is small. And though Adam was the first guy and though he had a lot to do, relatively speaking, his sphere was small. That bothers us sometimes when our sphere is small. But God didn't make us to be supermen or superwomen God did not make us to receive the praise or the adulation from taking care of everything. That's, that's, that's His alone. But God made us like little kings and queens, little princes and princesses, little vice regents to represent Him here on the earth, to image Him, to show forth His likeness as we take care of our sphere of stewardship. He gets the praise. That's why He made us. Turn with me, please, to Psalm 8. David, the worshiping shepherd who had become a king, had an amazing capacity to understand these things. And in Psalm 8, he speaks of them. And just so this was not self-contained, he gave it to his music leader so the whole country, the whole nation, all the covenant people could sing it together. "'O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth! You have set Your glory above the heavens.' You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David was thankful for his sphere of influence, which which was great, but still relatively small. And he saw that all this returned praise back to God. So, steward what God has given you well. So, God made us to be like Him. God made us to glorify Him. And God made us to enjoy Him. Verse 29, He tells them that everything that He has made is for them. It's interesting here that He says that all the green stuff is for them. For those of you who have a more vegetarian or vegan lifestyle, you might use this as a proof text for your position. Probably not exactly what this is teaching. Later on in Genesis, it's clear that mankind's able to eat animals. Some people would say that that's a post-fall thing. That's probably reading into the text a little bit because the text here does not say that the meat wasn't also for them. Regardless, the food was for them. He says to them, everything that you see is for you. Now we've got to be careful because this does not mean that we should abuse it. I think some of you probably are very wary of of environmental extremism, that somehow Mother Earth is the supreme thing and we worship her and serve her. That's not the case. But at the same time, you can go the opposite direction out of rebellion, out of irritation, and say, well, we can do whatever we want. It's, it's ours after all. The pigs are ours, and the cows are ours, and the trees are ours, and the hills are ours, and the rivers are ours, and we can do whatever we want to them. But being a good steward is not just extracting things from your sphere. Being a good steward is taking care of the things in your sphere. So, it's helpful to see that God has made all things for our enjoyment and for our biological sustainment, but He also made it for us to enjoy and to take care of for future generations. So, I think we could say from this text that all the things we see around us are for our use, but the text also calls us to responsible ecology, to take care of the earth. God made us to enjoy the earth, but to take care of it. It's interesting, and I think incredibly beautiful, that here at the end, in verse 31, God's saying, take a look at all this. If He did give Adam and Eve a chance to, to take it all in, to survey the whole thing, it had to have been breathtaking. Breathtaking. What would have been like to be, have been created as an adult? Like for us, we're, we're obviously every single one of us came out as like tiny little infants, and we grow into this awareness of our environment. And after a while, you know, even being in amazing places like mountains and oceanside places, we're not that amazed anymore usually. What would have been like to have perfect rationale, perfect feeling, perfect volition, and to see it for the first time, what would that have been like? Moses says here, behold. And that's what Adam and Eve did. They beheld it, and it was very good. Back in verses 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, God calls his created order good. But here at the end, after everything's finished, behold, it was very good. Everything we see around us, God made very good. He's pleased with it. God does all things well. And at the end of it, the sixth day, he brings it to completion. And then notice in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, after God does all this, he rests. And he sets aside the seventh day to be a holy day, to be a unique day this is true not just for him, but for us as well. Well, what do we do with all this? And how do, we, how do we sort of encapsulate this? How would we categorize all these things? God shows Adam and Eve the creation. It's very good. And he says, it's for you. And then he rests. I think the way to sum all this up is just to say that God made us to enjoy him. So he made us to be like him so that we might glorify him. And we glorify him best when we enjoy him the most. You see, these three things really go together. It has been said that the chief end of man, the chief purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There's been a tweak put upon that over the past few decades that goes like this. We glorify God most by enjoying Him forever. They're not two separate things. We don't just glorify God and enjoy Him. No. We glorify God most when we enjoy Him the most. So God made us to be like Him. He made us after His image so that we might steward our sphere of influence that glorifies Him. And we we want to do that most when we enjoy Him and we see Him in creation. We've already said here that God provides a benediction upon mankind. But isn't it really fascinating, and I think this is where the redemptive subtleties come into this text. Isn't it really interesting that God speaks benediction, He blesses, knowing full well it was coming. I've already said to you that God is effusive, and I keep using that word so you'll learn it. God's pouring out. God is effusive in His grace. Creation screams it. But there are redemptive undertones here for those of us who have eyes to see. So think about that. God blesses, He gives benediction, He says, behold, Look at all this. It's very good, and it's for you. But God made these image bearers, these rational beings who had free will, knowing full well that they would abuse it and turn their backs on him and spit in his face. And yet he made us anyway, and yet he blessed us anyway. Why did he do that? We've already made it very clear that it wasn't because he didn't realize it would come. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say you're dating a guy, and he's a great guy from from, from all intents and purposes. You you look at him, and you think he's the best guy ever. Like, he writes poetry. He smells good. You know, he's trim. He wears the best clothes. He drives a nice car. He's got a great job. He has a stock portfolio. He's he's going places. And, And not only that, he just really loves you. Like, like, he goes places that most guys wouldn't go. He, he, he talks about things most guys won't talk about. And, and you, you take him home to meet your parents, and your dad grills him. Not literally, like speaking to him. <laughs> and, and some dads would like to do that. And, and, and you, say, you say to your dad after he goes home, dad, Daddy, you know, little girl, Daddy, what do you think? Oh, I really like him. But then your brother comes home. <clears throat> and your brother is also sort of this, like, blunt instrument. Your dad's kind of more the fine instrument who takes care of you, but your brother's like the blunt instrument who also wants to take care of you, but he's not very subtle. And he comes home, and he says, hey, you know, I just saw my friend Jerry driving down the street. And, and your sister says, Jerry, I love Jerry. And Jerry just came over tonight and, and had steak with us, and Dad loves him. And then your brother says, I know Jerry from college, and he's a jerk. He uses women. He's like this Casanova guy, and he puts on this great image, but he's, he's a really bad guy. But ignoring your brother and not wanting to believe it, you marry the guy anyway. I'm skipping a lot of dating stuff. And then after two years, your brother was right. The blunt instrument was right. He's a jerk. He turns his back on you. He's unfaithful to you. He goes and finds other women, and he sets you aside. Now, if any of us knew a guy would really do that, would we really marry him? Guys, if you knew a woman would really cheat on you and run away from you, would you really marry her? Like if it was definite. No, none of us would do that. That's what creation was like. It doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make any sense, not only that God would create it, but that He would say it was good at the beginning, knowing that very soon it was going to unravel. You see, Israel was called an unfaithful bride. One of the greatest prophets of Israel was told to marry a woman that was very clearly going to cheat on him and turn her back on him. And yet, in God's great providence and wisdom, He had Hosea go marry Gomer, and then after she cheated on him, He had him go get her again as a picture of what God had done for Israel. And much like that, we are spiritual adulterers. But God made us anyway. God created us for love, even though we would spurn His love. And this is why I say to you that creation, everything we see around us, and we ourselves, possessors of rebellious hearts, all of this screams about effusive grace. God made this world to be a gracious, enjoyable place, and God made you, who He knew would rebel, you who the only way you could come back to Him and enjoy Him and worship Him and glorify the Great One would be through sending His Son to die for you. That is effusive grace. So you see, this text is not just about helping us to figure out how it all got started and how long it took. You see, primarily this text is to teach us about grace. Both in everything we see around us And perhaps even more subtly as we gaze in here and see what's going on. You see, we are and always have been radically, sovereignly loved. You were in the mind of God from eternity past and He made you anyway. And He gave you amazing gifts anyway. I think the most fundamental thing that any Christian has to get their brains wrapped around and has to get pressed down into the very fabric of their hearts is that we have always been radically and sovereignly loved. On your best of days, when you seem like a pretty faithful worshiper, what do you need? You need healthy doses of remembrance that you're not really that great, but God has poured His great grace out on you effusively anyway. What about on your bad days when you're just a mess? You need fresh, abundant, effusive doses of the notion that God has radically, sovereignly always loved you. You see, in some ways, you're always going to come up short. Despite how faithful you try to be, despite how hard you try to work, despite how faithful you try to be to your religion, you will always fall short. Justice frightens us, mercy intrigues us, grace overwhelms us, which is why we say here so often you must meditate upon the gospel. Every day. This is so hard for us. But this text calls us to see grace for what it is. Both in everything we see around us, which is a gift, and everything inside of us, which can only be transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite writers currently is a guy named Tulian Chavidgin. Billy Graham's grandson. He pastors down in South Florida. He wrote an article this week on Gospel Coalition And he's talking about preaching through Romans, which is what he's currently doing. But his discussion about Romans really applies to what we're talking about here. So, he's basically saying in Romans that God speaks about grace all the time. A friend of Tullian's said this recently, The theological plumbing in the church these days is fixed in such a way that if you try to pour the pure water of mercy down the pipe of people's hearts, It backs up, and the theological plumber gets called to come clear the clog with the plunger of a few ifs and buts. I'm convinced the old plumbing has to be totally replaced, not repaired, and this only happens when it fully breaks through suffering and failure, not arguments. What's he saying? Whenever we hear about grace, whenever we see grace, it's hard to believe. And it's even harder to receive. Because whenever you hear fresh doses of it on Sunday, or in your small group, or in your discipleship, it seems to come back up because it's in there. But we try to take a plunger and tamp it down and make it go down, and it just won't. Because the problem is we're still caught up in legalistic religion where we think we've got to meet God halfway. You don't meet God anyway. God made it all, including you, and He promised to come rescue you despite your rebellion. The gospel is not about fixing the old plumbing. It's about brand new plumbing. So, may God give you eyes to see His grace today, and may His grace pour down those pipes, drink it in, and enjoy Him. Here at the end, God rests. God wasn't tired He wasn't weary. He wasn't worn out. He's basically saying, by sitting down, it's done, and it's good. But it was also a picture of what He wanted humans to do. We will get tired. We will get weary. And so, we pattern days of rest after Him. In Exodus chapter 20, when Moses is given the Ten Commandments… It is said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. By the way, Sabbath does not mean seven. Some people think that it means rest. On it you shall do no work. You or your son or your daughters, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, God rests to show that He's done and He's happy. God rests as a pattern for us. But I think that subtly there's a picture of future rest coming because we know that in chapters 2 and 3, things begin to unravel. But there is a rest still for those who live in the unraveling, which is why Jesus can say in Matthew 11, "'Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.'" take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Very simply, the gospel is that Jesus died, was buried, and was resurrected, and that through His conquering death and resurrection, our sin may be taken away and we may get His righteousness. Therein is real rest." And that is why the writer of Hebrews can say in Hebrews 4, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Jesus promises us rest, but it's still future. So we press on, but we do it with full awareness that God made us to be like him, that he made us to glorify him and He made us to enjoy Him. And so we bind together under His gracious love and we press on toward that final rest that Jesus has promised and will bring us to. So if this passage is all about God's glorious grace, both in the created order and subtly hinting at the fact that though it would all fall apart, He'd still rescue it. It's a promise that we get what we don't deserve. God is effusive in His abundant grace. God cascades down upon us constantly with that grace, and I want you to enjoy Him today. I want you to rest in Him today. I want you to get that down in your heads and down in your hearts. And if it's true that God cascades out in love and He can't help but do it, it means that you should do it too. I don't think that's the primary application of this text. I think the primary application is to be in awe and to rest but I think a subsidiary or a secondary application is that you should do the same. Are you effusive in the way that you pour out grace? Boy, that's a hard question to answer because most of us don't like looking down inside at the things that hinder that. But if you're resting in God's grace, if you're in awe of His grace, the only appropriate response is that the cascade continues from you and that you don't damn it up. So pray about that. I hope you will.